Well, good morning again, everyone. It's really good to see you. Um, I don't know how many of you, anybody, any readers of, article, of articles in Science Daily? Anybody here? Come on, no scientists? Man, you guys are going to make me think I'm really smart when it's not really that true. Because I read an article in Science Daily, uh, and I read it because I thought it was really interesting. What they did was they studied how people's perceptions of the price of things affected how much they enjoyed them. So, for example, people were given five different wines to taste. They were told that the price of the wine bottle ranged from $5 to $45. What do you think happened when people were told that the wine that they were drinking came from a $45 bottle? What's that? It was delicious. What about the opposite? When they were told, <laughs> I like it. I have a pretty good impersonation there, right? <laughs> How about when they were told it was coming from a $5 bottle? Any guesses? Meh. I got some mess. I hear some mess out there. Well, you're right on point. They studied this thing called EP, which is experience pleasantness. Sounds like something I would make up, but it is a real term. And they hooked up MRIs to people's brains to measure and watch the sections of their brain that respond to pleasure and the differences between whether you were told it was a $5 bottle of beer, of wine, or a $45 bottle. And they discovered that when participants were told that they were consuming wine from a $45 bottle of wine, they enjoyed it more than if they were told it was a $5 bottle, even if it was the same bottle. At the same time, participants enjoyed $5 bottles more than expensive brands if they were told they were drinking the $45 bottles of wine. Now, I mention this because we are in the middle of a series on virtue. And virtue, as we've been talking about it, is this. Virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices that require effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't, quote-unquote, come naturally. And then on the one thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what is required automatically, like it's second nature. It's become a virtue to them and to their benefit. And developing virtue asks us to choose things that sometimes seem less attractive. And it seems that there are certain things that our culture tells us that we need to be and do to experience a good life. They promise happiness. But Sometimes I wonder if on some of those things we're not being sold a bill of goods. That what we assume will make us happy is really a cheap $5 bottle of wine. And so today we're going to look at one of the virtues that we've been looking at in this list. This list that comes from uh, a Christian scripture, Galatians chapter 5. You might be familiar with it. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And the author writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Those are the virtues we're studying. And so this week, we come to another virtue called gentleness. Gentleness. It's a big one in my family right now because we have a one-year-old. And I don't know if you've noticed one-year-olds, they like to hit things. That's how they explore Bam, 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 bam. And so one of the first things we're teaching him is gentle, 
gentle, especially with small furry animals that people keep as pets. <laughs> bam, 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 or grab, pull. So gentleness is a big theme in our household, but what I found is it's not necessarily a big theme in most of our lives. It's not a high price tag item. We aren't typically looking for gentleness, or as gentleness is sometimes translated in this passage, meekness. We aren't typically looking for meek leaders, are we? We don't typically want to be viewed as meek, do we? And this may be, to us, a $2 bottle of wine. But you'll find, and I think I've found, and we can find together, that Jesus has some interesting ideas on how to experience a good life that run contrary to what we might expect or is popular in our culture. And sometimes it seems like Jesus snuck into the store and switched all the price tags around. And today, we're going to look at how meekness is actually a $1,000 price tag, although we treat it like a $1 or $2. And maybe, just maybe, I'm asking the question, have we been duped? Have we been duped about meekness as compared to strength? Or what really is strength? So let's take a look. So this week, as we talk about gentleness, also often referred to as meekness, We're going to look at some very famous words that Jesus said about meekness and go from there. I'm reading to you from Matthew chapter 5. This is two verses, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. Anyone heard that one? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, if there has ever been a teaching by Jesus that sounded like a cheap bottle of wine, it might be this one. Blessed are the meek. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the term meek, I usually think of someone who's timid, weak, passive, basically a doormat. Someone who gets pushed around, gets pushed down, and takes it. Someone who doesn't have good boundaries (laughs) and gets walked all over. That's what I think of when I think of meekness. And that really doesn't sound like a good life to me. But as I studied this passage, because that's what I had to do, (laughs) I discovered a few things. You know, there are two people in the Bible referred to specifically as meek. One of them, this guy named Moses. Moses is a pretty big deal in the Bible. He did some pretty big things. If you know the story of Moses, he wasn't a doormat. He led a nation of thousands out of slavery, famously through the Red Sea on dry ground. He spoke to God face-to-face, and he was the commander-in-chief of an army of thousands and thousands of people. He wasn't a weak person, and he certainly was not passive. Jesus is the other person referred to as meek. Jesus really didn't get pushed around either. He stood up to religious and social oppression. He made a really big scene in the temple, the focal point of his whole nation at one point, He was not passive, and he led a movement that continues to this day. So as we ponder what meekness is, let me just suggest at the beginning, we make some room for the idea that maybe, just maybe, we've misunderstood what meekness actually is. Maybe it's not being a doormat. Maybe it's not having no boundaries. Maybe it's not getting pushed around. Maybe it's something different. 
And I think Jesus can help us with this. You notice in this passage, he said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And that phrase, for they will inherit the earth, most people think that Jesus is almost certainly making a reference uh, to Psalm 37, which I want to read for you. It's in your bulletin. Uh, Psalm 37 goes like this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. See that will inherit the land? A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So from just this one psalm, I think we can see two characteristics of what meekness is that maybe can reshape the way we think about it and move it from doormat to something else. First, you notice that the meek in this passage, they trust God. I know that's a big idea. You know, what does that mean exactly? But they trust in him. Verse verse 5 says they trust in him. Verse 7 says, be still and wait for the Lord. They have a sense that God has their back in such a way that they don't have to turn to the ways that other people do things. So you see this list of like anger and malice and deceitfulness, all these things that people are doing. They don't have to do that and they don't have to fret. They have this sense that God will come through for them, that they can do something different. They don't have to dominate or take for themselves. There is an ability to suffer in the short term for a long-term reward because God's at work on their behalf. The second thing you can see is that they let God's ways shape their ways. They let God's ways shape their ways. Now, what God's ways are, there's a sermon for each one. There's a lot of discussion we had about everything, but in general, that's their perspective to tap into the way that God does things and let that shape who they are and the way that they do things. It says in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. In verse 8, do not fret, refrain from anger, wrath, and evil. You don't have to do things that way. So meek does not equal weak. The meek have great strength, but their strength is not in themselves. Instead, it's in whom they trust. That's the first part. And meek does not equal passive either. The meek, we see here, just have a different way of going about things. Instead of giving in to anxiety, anger, and wrath, the meek, quote, commit their way to the Lord. They look for a different way to live out their lives. Not just the way they see around them. Even the way they think, oh, that's working, as much as it doesn't feel good (laughs) or it shouldn't work. As much as they see the evil people advancing, they trust there's a better way. So meek doesn't equal weak. Meek does not equal passive. I like the way a commentator named David Gusick put it. He says, meekness equals strength under control. Strength under control. Now you might think, Brad, this all sounds really good in a sermon They're great ideals, but I wonder if those things might work better in storybooks, in the movies, than they do in real life. 
And I thought a little bit about that. It actually reminded me of a story that, or a gentleman that I just thought of recently, again, because of some of his recent activities in Congress. Uh, a gentleman named John Lewis, he's a congressman from Georgia. Many of you probably heard of him. Uh, if you haven't, uh, as a small or younger child, he was inspired by the Montgomery bus boycotts and the speeches that he heard given by Martin Luther King. And so when he got old enough, he joined the civil rights movement. And he became a big leader in the civil rights movement. Eventually became the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or it's commonly known as SNCC. Uh, SNCC valued nonviolent ways of protest. It was one of their core essential values. So uh, Mr. Lewis organized sit-ins. Uh, he risked his life by taking uh, part in the Freedom Rides in the summer of 1961. Uh, the idea of that was... Um, that uh, a diverse group of people would simply sit in seats, uh, ride through the South, and sit in seats reserved for white patrons at bus terminals across the South. Uh, in the process, he was arrested 40 times in his life. Uh, if you read about those stories, you'll hear about a lot of beatings, uh, firebombing of those buses, things of that nature. Um, he definitely took his lumps, to say the least. And then on March 7th, 1965, and a movie came out about this about a year and a half ago, there was a peaceful march from Selma to Montgomery to highlight the need for voting rights that were being denied to African Americans. Uh, the day was later referred to as Bloody Sunday, as the marchers were attacked by police, um, but refused to respond with violence of any kind, and Lewis himself was badly beaten. Um, all those things had different effects over the years. Um, but for a moment, I want us to set aside whatever political leanings you might have. I don't want to get political, but let's just focus on history. And let's just consider what has happened. So in light of the last two political elections, where for the first time an African-American candidate has been elected the President of the United States, in light of the Voting Rights Act that was passed later in 1965 after Bloody Sunday, in light of all those things, who do you see inheriting the land? Was it the folks with power, resources, clubs, anger, wrath, tortured by fear? Or was it the meek who had faith and proceeded in a different way and in a way of nonviolence? Were Mr. Lewis and his partners weak? Or doormats. I think this is the third thing we can learn about the meek, and that is that they inherit the earth. Now, I know winning an election or two doesn't fix everything. A law here or there doesn't fix everything. We've seen disturbing examples of racism just in the past several months. But for Congressman Lewis, the election of Barack Obama, for example, was a big moment. And I wonder what price tag he would put on the bottle of wine that he chose in the early 60s. You know, I first started reading more about this story right after the election in 2008 when Obama was elected and Representative Lewis was interviewed. He was being interviewed by Charlie Gibson on ABC who asked him if he would shed a tear if Obama was elected. And he responded that he had already shed tears on several occasions, and he continued by saying this. Earlier tonight, I was at Ebenezer Church speaking to a group, hundreds or thousands of citizens. 
when Pennsylvania went, oh, hey, Pennsylvania, when Pennsylvania went over to Barack Obama, I shouted for joy, and I didn't know I could jump so high. I think I'm going to shed more tears before the night's over. I didn't know that I could jump so high. Those are the types of moments we want to live for in our lives. But they're only the moments that come from choosing sacrifice, from choosing to trust God and do things in a different way, often by being meek. What I'm trying to say here is that the stuff in the scriptures that we're reading, that Jesus says, blessed are the meek. We read this psalm about the meek will inherit the earth. Those aren't just pithy sayings platitudes that sound really good. And we think, wow, in a perfect world, wouldn't it work that way? What I'm saying is this stuff works. There's truth here. But often the key is being willing to lose to win. Think about lots of situations in your life. So maybe you have a sibling who's really terrible to you. I don't know. I hope not. But you know exactly what you could say to tear her down emotionally in a word, don't you? You know her that well. It would feel good, wouldn't it? It looks like a $45 bottle of wine, doesn't it? Maybe your boss is a jerk. Anyone here? Don't have to raise your hands. (laughs) Maybe your boss is a jerk. He takes advantage of you. He berates you. A big project's coming due, and you know exactly how you could throw him under the bus. You're angry, maybe rightfully so. The idea of waiting for God to vindicate you doesn't look too good. What do you do? You know something embarrassing about your neighbor, and there's a certain social structure on your block, and you're a little bit lower down on the totem pole than you'd like to be. And you can move up the social scene by letting that little tidbit out. Can you speak well of him instead? You know, every day we have chances to lose. The stakes aren't always nearly as high as what Congressman Lewis faced, but we have opportunities to take the high road or put others down or to push people down to push ourselves forward. We have chances, though, to be meek. And Jesus comes and he puts the $1,000 price tag on those moments. Those moments of sacrifice, the strength of not taking when you could take, not using your power when you could, or using it in a different way. That's not easy. It takes something to motivate us. And I think like Congressman Lewis, we need something that will make us jump higher than we ever thought that we would. And there's a little bit of an insight here, I think, in the second verse that we have from Jesus, where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Righteousness is a way of saying right relatedness. It involves how we relate with God. So there's this internal sort of vertical up and down aspect to it, but it's also very much concerned with how we relate to the world around us, how we interact with people, the environment, society, the world in general. And there's a way, a God-inspired way, that we can tap into to have healthy and healed right-relatedness, righteousness. But here, you'll notice, Jesus doesn't put the focus on that. 
He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. Instead, he places the emphasis on the desire that we have to experience this and live this way when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who believe that there is a better way and long for it. See, the motivation for the virtue of meekness is hunger for what I'm calling a transcendent way of life. That's a big word that just says connecting to something bigger than what you see and feel and seems normal. The hope that there is something orchestrating everything that we can tap into. Um, G.K. Chesterton was a famous preacher who 80 years ago wrote about this hunger, and he wrote this. We all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. (laughs) Children like romantic tales. But babies like realistic tales because they find them romantic. Did you catch that? And this proves that even nursery tales only echo an almost prenatal leap of interest and amazement. These tales say that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. Now, what is he getting at here? I think Chesterton is imploring us. I don't think he's imploring us to just simply return to the simplicity of a two-year-old who's amazed by the ordinary, per se. But I think there's something else happening here. An, An author I read said this, the reason the river awakens wonder in us and then leaves us thirsty again is because the river is just a picture. It's just a pointer. In other words, what we really want is the absolute reality behind the river. And that's what we're hungry for. And when we touch that, the fact that the river is made of water amazes us. It doesn't have to be made of wine anymore. Because through that river and experience that river, we can actually reach out and touch something bigger than us, transcendent. And our hunger is for a transcendent way of life, to connect to something bigger a connection beyond the ordinary to the extraordinary that holds it all together, an ultimate relating to things around us, an ultimate relationship with our Creator. And I think Mr. Lewis's experience shows us that there can be moments where we never thought we could jump so high. When we connect to that and we long for a life full of those experiences, And that's what righteousness promises us. That there's a better way, there's a bigger way that seems often contrary to some of our natural inclinations or what our culture around us is telling us to believe. So we're blessed when we realize that. When we hunger and thirst for that. When the status quo is not enough. And this is thirsting for the $1,000 bottle of wine. You know, this is like, just forget the Manischewitz. <laughs> Anything with a screw top, we're going for $1,000. 
It's not in a cardboard box. Although, anyway. <laughs> but here, here's, here's a difficult thing with this, and that is that life is hard, and this wonder can get beaten out of us. And we lose our appetite for the good stuff because we stop hoping for it. And the loss of appetite is often a sign of illness, right? When I'm not hungry, <laughs> Becca knows something is wrong, right? Something is off. I'm sick somehow. So let me ask you a question. I think this is a big question for us. How cynical do you feel today? I mean, honestly, how cynical do you feel today? How, how, about, how cynical do you feel today compared to a year ago or five years ago? And I'm only going to say one thing to you. Who wouldn't be? Honestly, who wouldn't be cynical? Maybe you're trying to do things or have been trying to do things in a different way, and you're getting beat down for it. You might be thinking, yeah, Brad, I'm trying to believe this, but right now I don't feel like I'm experiencing the good life. At all, I just feel like I'm getting socked in the gut. And I think Jesus' encouragement to us is to keep hoping. You might have expected that. And to trust, even when you're tired, you might have expected that. Because sometimes the way to righteousness or right relating is not the short way. It's the long way. And the one comfort I can offer you if you're in one of these times of waiting that we see in the psalm or suffering for doing what's right, trying to do things a different way, even though you're taking punches for it, is that this type of living, this meek living, is something that Jesus didn't just preach, he practiced. He was meek. For example, he had the strength to call an army to his side when he was arrested. He could have opposed the Romans and the religious leaders with political and military might. But he knew that wasn't what God was up to, so he was meek. He could control his strength. And when his followers grabbed swords, he told them to put them away. He was meek, and he suffered for it. But his suffering, the cross, made the good life a transcendent life, the ability to touch something bigger to make everything more meaningful, even the mundane things like water in a river, possible and available to all humankind. So that now if we trust him and his work on the cross, he'll give us a way to connect to righteousness. And even as he submitted in controlled strength to the suffering in his path, he trusted that God had his back and he saw a better way coming. He makes that available to us. A famous passage from the Bible, at least it's famous to me, is the one that talks about Jesus that says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So if that's you, if you feel beat up, there's no easy answer for you this morning. And I don't want to say, oh, just keep hoping, although I want you to keep hoping. I don't want to be like, oh, just keep your chin up. But I will say this. If you're tired, first, you're in good company. You are in excellent company. Jesus, the other heroes of the Bible, they ended up in jail, in lion's dens, enslaved, 
but it was never the end of their story. Where you are, particularly if you ended up there because you took a less traveled road, you were meek, doesn't mean that's your final destination. Jesus' promise is that the meek will inherit the earth. The earth is yours. And you will have reasons to jump higher than you ever thought you could. And I can't promise you that things will work out just like you hope they will in every detail. But I can tell you that you're in good company. And in the meantime, what's your alternative? Do you want to be the violent, out-of-control, oppressive person getting ahead by pushing others down? Or do you want to touch the transcendent, to aim for righteousness, to connect to God as you plan to inherit the earth? So instead of giving up, try this. Allow yourself to hunger again. Allow yourself to hunger again. As tired as you are, find ways to tap into that thing that you hope for. What would the world look like if it was inherited by the meek? What's that picture in your heart, in your mind? You know, no matter what happens in your life, how many moments you have where maybe you do feel like you're touching the sky, are you jumping higher than you ever thought you could? Things will always be changing, growing, developing. Congressman Lewis, this is why I was thinking about him. You know, he probably dreamt in the 60s of protecting, of protected voting rights for all Americans. Maybe he dreamed of an African-American president someday. He's still dreaming of new things. A little over a month ago, he staged another sit-in. Did you read about this? In the chambers of Congress. And this time it was for common sense gun reform. Now you might not agree with him, maybe you do, but he's still reaching for something just out of his grasp. He's still sitting in, he's still dreaming. What is something you can wish for was better in your world or in your life? What is a small thing then that you can do to lean into that hope? What is a little choice? We're talking about building virtue. What is a little choice, however small, that you can sort of foster that hunger? For some of you, you're so tired, it might be just allowing yourself to pray again and seeing what happens. But you can ask yourself this. What would a different approach to that thing look like in your life? What would change look like? And what is the next step towards that change or transformation? And just this week, do that thing. Don't worry about next week. But this week, make that call. Have that conversation. Invest that dime. Tell someone what you're hoping for so that it's known and it's real. What's the next step? Make that little step in faith, however small. Even if you feel like you're trusting small, Feed that hunger. Let's pray. God, I just know this room is full of people that have given significant parts of their lives towards 
trying to make the world a better place. Some people have done it with their careers. Some people have done it with generosity. Some people have done it in all different sorts of ways that we see and we don't. I know that trying to make the world a better place is tiring. And we have our moments, but for every person who's in between, hoping for vindication, praying for change, heartbroken in some sort of disappointment, I just pray you'd come alongside them right now, Holy Spirit. You'd rest with them. I pray that maybe even your presence now in this moment would be a chance to touch something bigger, transcendent. We know you're in the world changing, that you gave everything you had so that the meek would inherit the earth. Show us how to move forward, what the next step is, and care for our hearts. Fill us with joy and hope. And God, I pray for just around the corner some moments that make us feel like we've never jumped so high. Little breakthroughs. Amen. If you're on the worship team, if you go ahead and come up here, we're going to be leading worship in a moment. Um, and before we do that, though, I want to invite a representative from our prayer team to come forward. As I mentioned every week, folks pray before the service and they're asking God what he's up to so they can share it with you because sometimes it might hit you right where you are. So Frank, why don't you tell us what you're praying about? Good morning. My name is Frank Verasso. I am a prayer team representative. It's good to see you all here. Um, so praying before the service, 